the Palestinians are the strongest people I've ever met in my entire life. You know, they've been fighting for 75 years. They're going to fight for as long as it takes. Just like every occupation, you know, it comes to an end. When you say like, what's the end outcome? I don't see the end outcome as being great for Israel. You know, at the end of the day, there will be a Palestine. Welcome to Fight Back Radio, a production of fightbacknews.org, taking you to the heart of the people's struggle. I'm your host, Richard Berg, and I want to start out this episode by wishing everyone a happy International Women's Day. Uh, We're going to be releasing this episode in early March of 2024, and uh, the the International Women's Day is March 8th every year. And it's been going on for uh, over 100 years. Uh, it started out with uh, the textile workers in New York City and especially the, the socialists uh, in that movement. But uh, it became an international event. And so in your city, there's likely a march or some kind of program celebrating International Women's Day. If there's not, uh, you should hold one yourself and uphold the women in our struggle who are the backbone and have uh, you know, played such important roles in every community, every city, every country. And so uh, we encourage you to do that. Um, I want to also uh, dedicate this uh, um, episode, uh, this International Women's Day episode, to five women uh, who are on the bargaining team and the leaders of the struggle at uh, Instituto del Progreso uh, Latino. And uh, there was a five-day strike there for uh, of teachers and educators to try to put money back into the classroom. This is a charter school where public money was being sifted into other parts of their organization. It's uh, two high schools, and these uh, women and men that work there uh, went on strike for five days and fought hard uh, to get the resources put back into the school. And so I want to read off their names here. Uh, Gabriela Solis, uh, Leah Joanitis, uh, Evelyn Bodigan, uh, Karina Gutierrez, and Rosie Markopoulos. Uh, and those five women were the bargaining team in the heart and soul. And you know what? I'm going to add one more. Marie O'Donnell was the leader of the contract action team. And so this was a, a, a woman-led uh, uh, strike that uh, fought for uh, mostly Latino students um, and to get resources, uh, spe- you, know, all, you know, get more staff put into the building and uh, the resources they need to, to provide a proper education. So happy International Women's Day, women. And uh, congratulations on this huge victory, because the strike ended with a huge victory. And uh, it's something that we're all very proud of. Our guest today, um, though, is uh, uh, Meredith Abbey, who's, uh, you know, full disclosure, I've known Meredith for uh, for quite a while, I guess a couple decades probably. And uh, she's been an activist for that entire time um, in the anti-imperialist, anti-war movement, and has been, you know, has seen a lot and done a lot. She was a founding member of the Minnesota Anti-War Committee. And uh, especially, you know, I I think I could say a lot of things that she's done over the years because she's been a nonstop activist and leader up in Minnesota and even nationally and regionally for for many, many, many years. But, um, you know, after the Republican convention in um, 2008, where they nominated John McCain, uh, she and... uh, uh, 22 others, uh, they call them the anti-war 23, um, were, had their, you know, their houses raided, they were indicted, and uh, they were tried, you know, they were, they criminalized their um, anti-war activism uh, in the war in Iraq at that time. 
and uh, it's it was a uh, you know uh, there was a nationwide and international movement that uh, developed around that, and uh, Meredith uh, and everybody stood together. They stood in solidarity, and you know the the police and the FBI tried FBI especially. They had a grand jury tried to get them to you know tell lies about each other, and these are you know uh, people who were. Just, you know, good-hearted, uh, conscientious people that were standing up and trying to uh, challenge U.S. foreign policy, and they were criminalized for that. So Meredith, uh, you know, continues, it hasn't lost a beat as, as far as I can tell, and uh, continues to this day to fight. And, and you'll hear her talk about what's going on in Palestine as well as uh, the Ukraine and other places and, and give a, a, a full analysis of a U.S. foreign policy and, and a, a critique that's uh, well deserved of uh, U.S. imperialism. So, uh, you know, here here's Meredith Abbey. So, uh, Meredith, welcome to Fight Back Radio. Thank you very much. I'm excited to be here. Yes, it's uh, great to have you. And um, so, uh, I, I want to start out by talking about uh, Palestine. And uh, actually, I do want to spend a little time on this. But you know, we've we've been you know the the the, the 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 resistance and, and uh, uh, the war and the, the the genocide I should say uh, of the of the Israelis the Zionists um, against the Palestinian people has been going on since uh, early October and uh, you know now they're you know they've pushed uh, with, you know the people to the edge of the border with uh, Egypt and uh, you know it's and they continue you know to 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 just kill people they continue the genocide how how does this end i mean what's what's the uh what's the 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 goal of the zionist or the you know i mean maybe i'll ask you about the resistance too but let's start out what are they trying to do here what's what, what's their plan i mean it's it seems uh um uh, uh other than being a horrific uh cruel and uh you know deadly uh um, actions, it's uh, it's hard to see what, what their motivations are. So I had the opportunity to go to Rafah, which is where, which is on the Egypt border, which is where most of the Palestinian population in um, Gaza has been pushed to. I had the ability to go there in 2002. And when I was there in 2002, I saw huge lines of people who were waiting to try to go to Egypt for important medical care, we're being denied day after day. We're waiting out in the sun. And in many ways, what we're seeing is just like a different, a more extreme version of what I saw in 2002, which is that the goal of Israel is that they want people to leave uh, if they're Palestinian. And that could be by death. That could be by them immigrating and leaving and going somewhere else, becoming refugees somewhere else. But at the end of the day, I mean, that's really why this these extreme forms of collective punishment have been used is because they want that land and they don't want to share it. And so I think it's important to sort of recognize that, you know, that the goal has been the same for 75 years. It's been, you know, Israel wants complete control of that land and they don't want to share it. Um, they see from the river to the sea in a different way than we, when, when we talk about from the river to the sea, when we talk about from the river to the sea, we're talking about the fact that Palestinians deserve to have political rights and equality and all of their historic homeland. Um, but really what the Israeli government is looking for is from the river to the sea is it's all Israel in charge all the time. And Gaza is particularly gone after 
and it's been in this stage of siege and then constant bombardment and sort of like these different, you know, periods of bombardment that have happened to really punish Gaza for daring to resist the Israeli occupation. And so um, I really think that that's their end goal is, is that they want Gaza for themselves. Um, and they want and they it's a beautiful place. I mean, we're talking about beautiful, you know, real estate with beautiful ocean views, which I'm sure lots of Israelis from Tel Aviv would love to turn into little condos. But the fact of the matter is, is that there are millions of people who live there who have the right to continue to live there and are not willing to leave. And, and they've interviewed people even on mainstream news sources like National Public Radio, where people have where Palestinians have told reporters. I don't want to leave to go to Egypt because I don't have any belief that I would ever be allowed to come back. People know that because of the way Israel has treated Palestinians for the past 75 years is that their goal is to depopulate the area of Palestinians using any means necessary. And so people are resisting using any means necessary. And for some families, that means refusing to leave, even though it endangers their life. Wow. So, yeah, okay. So the the, the thing, you know, obviously the Israelis were, for for decades and decades, they lived in a, a they set up an apartheid state, mm-hmm. um, an occupation where the the rights of uh, Palestinians were were you know were not respected or were you know were second class citizens in every respect, and uh, uh, but you, but you you know you're you're asserting that you know that was that's not good enough for them that they actually want to get rid of all of Palestinians and create some sort of a theocracy uh, 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 that, that they can control. Am I right? Yeah, and, it, and it's not just in, in Gaza that that's true. I mean, if you look at the West Bank, in terms of like the home demolitions, the way that they've used all sorts of methods that are frequently not even legal by their own Supreme Court to push people out of their houses, the way that they've used the wall to encircle different rural Palestinian villages. No, they definitely have um, that, that, you know, government Israeli plan is that they don't want to share this territory with Palestinians. That is totally true. And so like their use of collective punishment is in an effort to try to increase the amount of Palestinians that are in the diaspora to basically make people feel like they should leave. Or, you know, again, if they don't leave, they feel completely fine with using the IDF as a, as, you know, being able to commit mass murder as we're seeing right now, but also that repeatedly they just do use mass incarceration, you know, they arrest people very rampantly. And so the idea is, is that to make life so unlivable there to make it so that people choose to leave or their tactics that they use, make it so that then people, you know, like are dead. And unfortunately, like you're seeing right now, there are several reports that have come out recently that one of the reasons why Israel is using the amount of starvation that they're using in Gaza is because, again, they're trying to prevent another generation of Palestinians to be able to continue to resist them. That's their that's their end outcome. But what's sorry for what, you know, sorry for them, I'm being facetious. But, you know, what's true is, is that um, the Palestinians are the strongest people I've ever met in my entire life. You know, they've been fighting fighting for 75 years, they're going to fight for as long as it takes. Like they're not interested in um, backing down because at the end of the day, just like every 
occupation, you know, it comes to an end. Every time, any, every colonial rule eventually comes to an end. It doesn't matter if you're talking about Vietnam, if you're talking about what's going on in Palestine, if you're talking about Iraq or Afghanistan. The fact is, is that the people whose homes it is, they will stay to the very bitter end to fight for their homes. And so, um, I, I don't, I, I, when you say like, what's the end outcome, I don't see the end outcome as being great for Israel. Um, you know, at the end of the day, um, there will be a Palestine, you know, what that Palestine looks like is, you know, what is, you know, it is the future that's still in motion, but whether or not there is a Palestine isn't, um, a debatable issue because the fact is, is that the Palestinian people are incredibly committed to that being a reality. But also, they're right. They do deserve to have control of their historic homeland. They do deserve to have the right to self-determination. And if anything, right now, the number of people internationally that are seeing this as a righteous cause, as being something that people should should you know embrace and join up with, like those are the biggest numbers I've ever seen in my 20 plus years of organizing on this issue. Like people definitely are interested in standing in the streets and standing in solidarity with the Palestinian people. And so, you know, Israel has not, has done the opposite of a good PR campaign for themselves. They've really, you know, um, and the international community has seen an active genocide happening. And um, I don't see how they're going to be able to get away with this and end up being able to sort of turn back and be like, okay, let's go back to apartheid the way it was because apartheid the way it was, was already criminal, but apartheid after you, for example, have committed mass murder and mass starvation looks even worse. And so I don't, I don't see how Israel is going to be able to walk this back. I don't, I think that they are in the process of delegitimizing themselves on a daily basis. Okay. So I, I want to get to the resistance in a minute, but uh, let me ask you about, uh, about the United States, you know, so, okay. So I, you know, you, you did a good job. You just explained, you know, uh, whatever the, uh, maybe it's, it's not, you know, rational or humane, but, but, uh, the motives behind the Israelis, but, um, you know, why is the United States, I mean, the only one that's, you know, voting in the United Nations and et cetera, et cetera, you know, you know, what, you know, you can say, you know, some of the European countries are waffling, you know, most of them are waffling, especially the imperialist ones. But but the United States is clearly, um, you know, much more so than than any other country in the world. I mean, the United States government, not the people. Right. Um, uh, much more so. very good at differentiating between our government and, and us as people. I saw that firsthand in 2002. People would say your government is doing this to us, but nobody ever said you're doing this to us. Yeah, that that's important. Yes, uh, but but Joe Biden, you know, the president of the United States. It. I mean, and he's you know pretty unabashedly uh, uh, been a supporter of Israel from the start. What, what's what's the you know what's the motivation for him or for the for the leaders of the United States government to be so pro Israel? So I think it's important to understand that the U.S. is like plans for imperialism require that the U.S. has a military base in Israel. Like the U.S. uses Israel as the 51st state. Um, it uses it as the place by which they threaten the entire region. Like the U.S. can't exert pressure on Saudi Arabia, on Egypt, on Iraq, on Iran, on Syria, on Lebanon, and on, on all the other places in the Middle East without having Israel as the place that it's, that it's got lock, step, and barrel with it. And so I think that's important for us to understand that the U.S. sees a strategic 
um, benefit to Israel. And that's a matter of fact, the reason why this is not a Democrat issue or Republican issue. This is an, uh, this is an issue of imperialism. And both parties have historically agreed on this because both parties are imperialists and both of them want to see the U.S. be able to thrive at the expense of other countries, you know, internationally. And so, um, I think it's important to understand that Israel is responsible for um, the U.S. is responsible for Israel's crimes. Okay, it came. Israel came into existence um, with the assistance of the U.S. and the Great Britain. The occupation of Palestine has been sponsored by every single president in Washington D.C. since the Nakba. And I think it's really important to understand that Biden himself, as well as our American, you know, not our government because it doesn't represent us, but the American government is complicit in this genocide. They've sent more military aid to Israel. If you look over the time span since World War II, the U.S. has sent more aid to Israel than any other country in the world. Um, So we've literally built up this, like, apartheid state. Um, Biden has carried so much water for Israel. You know, like, he has defended Israel internationally, um, and he's defended their right to commit war crimes. He calls it self-defense, but this is not self-defense. This is These are war crimes. He's dispatched the U.S. Navy. He's ordered attacks on Yemen, which have done a valiant effort of defending and standing with their Palestinian siblings. Um, he's ordered the bombing of Iran and uh, of Iraq and um, Syria, and he's threatened Iran. And so this is not only a regional war at this point, but it is it is definitely being orchestrated by the United States with Israel. But the United States is 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 in the driver's seat on this conflict. And I think that's important to understand. It is not just that Israel is doing this and they're mean and the U.S. is letting them do this, like because that, that sometimes is how it's talked about by different people on the anti-war movement. I think it's really important to look at the fact that this is a part of the U.S.'s imperialist agenda, and Israel serves that master. It is not, for example, that the U.S. serves the master of Israel, okay? Like, Israel is serving the U.S.'s um, goals for the region and for the world, and I think that geopolitical importance is important. So, okay, so the the, the Israelis, okay, and what you've talked about is a... a, a a military control or a military uh, uh, domination of, of the region so that people can't do things, you know, that they can't have exercise amounts of independence. Mm-hmm. But uh, but imperialism, as I understand it, is, uh, is about, you know, is about, is about money, is about resources, is about wealth. And uh, so it, well, the, U- the U.S. can't control, ahead. for example, the oil in the region without Israel. Or if you look at the conflict with Yemen, like the U.S. can't control, like most of the world's trade is going through that region, right? Whether or not you're talking about the Suez Canal or you're talking about, um, you know, the strait next to Iran or the strait next to Yemen, like that is an incredibly geostrategic place for trade, for oil, et cetera. And so the military is used as the vehicle by which to control that area for economic purposes. But you're right. It is not, it's not just controlling for military sake. It's definitely using the military to control this larger economic agenda of the United States, which goes hand in hand with, with, with the U.S.'s, um, imperialism. And in the case of uh, Israel and, uh, you know, whatever the Red Sea, all it's, so it's, it's trade routes, it's the flow of oil. And of course, oil, you know, as an energy source is uh, critical for production of anything by competitors or by, you know, friends, depending along those lines. Is is that right? Am I on the right track here? Yes. Yes. Okay. 
So, um, okay, now let me let me circle back a little bit to the to the resistance, and because um, you started to talk about that, and I I, I wanted to wanted to, <laughs> wanted to talk about this first, I guess, but uh, um, but yeah, so um, uh, you know the the Palestinian resistance, uh, um, you know, you said you know, okay, we can't go back to a, an apartheid state. You you know, you hear politicians, you know, not around the world, but in the United States, uh, especially, you hear politicians. Uh, talk about a two-state solution and that, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll have some of this and some of that. And, um, you know, you mentioned what's going on now. Will uh, you know, the resistance, not just in Palestine, but their allies around the world and in the region. Um, what's, the, what's the end game, though, for the for the resistance? I mean, we've, we've had some people on Fight Back Radio who have uh, a number of people that talked about Palestine, and they, they talked about the uh, uh, united resistance uh, much more so than you know had, had been in previous years, and that. Uh, but w- w- what's what's their what's their goal? What's their what's their aim? And uh, you know, especially at this point, where you know it looks like uh, you know at least from a military human point of view, uh, what's happening there is devastating. What's happening there is devastating, but I think it's important to understand that um, they can't go back to the way it was. Um, like if you look, Gaza has been destroyed. I mean, so it's, it's, it's about the Israelis pulling out, but it's also about the fact that, um, there needs to be a way for Palestinians to be able to move forward. And so they're fighting for a lot more than just like, they want the Israelis out. They're fighting for a lot more than they just want, for example, an end of bombing. Like this is part of a, a, a longer term goal of being able to fight for liberation, I think that what's become apparent to the international community is, is that when Israel says things like there should be two states or um, which they won't even agree to for, 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 for the first thing. But Biden definitely has said things like there should be two states. I think that people have are starting to understand, like, how can that be true? Like, how could that be possible if, for example, one country next to the other country gets to strangle them for resources and, and things like that? So really, I think there is becoming incredible, increasing sympathy, sympathy and solidarity with the Palestinian people to, to sort of have this turning point where, for example, what you saw in the war in, you know, what was going on in South Africa, where this idea of like one person, one vote, everybody having political power, not having one group of people being able to surround and strangle this other group of people. Like, I think that we're seeing a transition where people are starting to think um, across the board and how, how can there be, how could there be two states if, for example, Israel is carving up the West Bank, if Israel is surrounding, you know, um, Gaza and refusing air, you know, like, like food in, into this area. I think people are starting to realize that like having two states is not actually liberation. And then that's not acknowledging the role that, for example, what has what happens to Palestinians within the 48 territories either. And so I think that people are starting to really open up their eyes to the fact that um, this this call for from the river to the sea really does mean that, you know, people want actual liberation for Palestinian people and all of historic Palestine, as opposed to just you know, less bombing or less starving or less murder of Palestinians in these small little enclaves that the Israelis have carved out for them. So what what does that mean? What does that look like? I mean, if, if, uh, you know, if we talk, when we talk about uh, Palestinian resistance, I mean, the, uh, the news media in the United States and uh, the Israelis, you know, probably the news media just reprinting, uh, 
you know, whatever State Department uh, press releases. But, uh, um, you know, they, they talked about, you know, from the, uh, you know, the, the resist, it's like a war between Palestinians and Israel and that there's a, um, that, you know, it's like a war between two states or something like that. And that, uh, uh, it's not like an oppressed people within an, an area. And, and the, the, uh, uh, you know how how does this how does this end? What is you know what, you know the the way as I guess what I started to say, you know CNN or whatever people will say is they take our slogan from the river to the sea to mean uh, that there should be a you know like a mass murder of uh, of uh, Jewish people in, in uh, Palestine or something like that. Um, what what does it mean? What 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 does liberation look like? And what what is the goals of the resistance? Well, first of all, I think it's really important to push back anytime you hear that sort of like claim that from the river to the sea means mass murder of of of, of Jewish people. Because first of all, I, I have seen firsthand both in the Palestinian community here in this country, as well as when I was in Palestine in 2002, people were always able to be very clear about the difference between being um being anti-Jewish as well as versus being anti-Zionist. And all of the Arab and Muslim people that I met with were very clear that they were anti-Zionist. Um, they were not, they were not anti-Jewish. And I think that's important to delineate the United States and the news media, particularly the Biden administration really like to blend these two things together and make sure that make it seem like these are one and the same. And I think it's really important to understand that Biden is Biden is a Zionist, but he's not Jewish. Like being Jewish does not have to mean that you're a Zionist and vice versa. Um, and so people, I, I, I've never heard on the ground anyone say that in, in Palestine or in the United States, who's Palestinian, say that there's a future for this land that involves um, pushing out anyone. All I've heard is, is that people are asking for the ability to have democratic rights and political rights in their historic homeland. And I think that that's important. And I feel like that same type of um, excuse was also given if you look at uh, what was going on in South Africa, that people said, oh, well, we can't give the blacks vote because if the blacks got to vote, we what would happen to us? You know, it's like, so this, th this idea that like, um, we can't give political power to this group of people that we have oppressed um, because there might be some consequences to us for our oppression. I just don't think that that argument holds water. Um, but also I think it's important that, you know, to say to you, Richard, like I'm not Palestinian. So like, I don't feel like, you know, in the United States, my job is to say like what, you know, liberation for Palestinians should look like. Um, I can say what I think U.S. solidarity should look like. I do feel like that I have a really big role in being able to articulate, but I don't feel like that's as much my role to be able to say what liberation for Palestine looks like. Um, I take my lead from the Palestinian people, um, both here in this country and in Palestine, but I don't feel like I have the right to dictate the terms of their liberation. But I do know that I have heard very repeatedly um, that my country plays an, it plays an incredible role in terms of being uh, a barrier to their liberation, because if it was just a battle between Palestine and Israel, I think that this would be over. You know, I think really one of the main obstacles to um, there being an actual like 
you know, movement forward is the role that the U.S. plays in terms of backing one side at the expense of the other side. And so I think an important role we have as solidarity in the United States is to end the, you know, the gravy train, if you will, to end the endless amounts of aid that the U.S. gives Israel so that, for example, there's they don't have to have any decision making about like, oh, we could pay for this or war. Like they never have to make that choice because they always get to do both because we're always the ones paying for the war. And so I think that it would be really critical if we could cut off that gravy train or if we could slow down that gravy train or we could at least identify that this gravy train exists, which I think more and more people are starting to realize. Whereas before this, I don't think that your average American knew the degree to which the United States was bankrolling Israel's policy against the Palestinians. But I do think that more and more people do now. So, well, let me ask you about this. And uh, so, but you know, you talked about, you know, you, you do have uh, ideas and you've just expressed a number of them about how the, the U.S. should resist what's going on there. And you know, you're a leader of the uh, anti-war committee in, in Minnesota in the Twin Cities. And uh, um, and you've been doing this kind of stuff for, you know, I forgot you said 20 years or something like that. So you started when you were three, I guess. But uh, um, <laughs> but uh, but yes. Uh, so uh, but no. But so uh, you, if you could, uh, you know, dig into that a little bit more. What is the. Minnesota Anti-War Committee uh, doing on the ground. Uh, and you know, I know Fight Back News has reported on a lot of this, and I encourage our, our listeners to to go to fightbacknews.org and read about uh, your, your work in the Anti-War Committee and others uh, around the country that are resisting this. But what, what kind of uh, activities have you taken, and, and what's your hope? Uh, uh, for, you know, what do you hope to accomplish from the, those activities? I really appreciate you asking. One of the reasons why my voice sounds so scratchy is from a lot of chanting and yelling this week. Um, so the State Board of Investment in Minnesota invests um, pensions of public workers, like teachers, like myself. And um, the State Board of Investment has four decision makers, the governor, the attorney general, the state auditor, and the secretary of state. And these four decision makers get to decide um, you know, how to, how to run the board of investment and the state board of investment has invested about $3 billion. It's a B in Israeli companies and weapons manufacturers that are directly involved in the conflict, like Lockheed Martin, like Elbit systems, like general dynamics, et cetera. And so what we've been doing for the past several years is building this campaign to educate people where their taxpayer dollars are going to educate people where their pensions are going and to ask for the State Board of Investment to it to divest Minnesota from Israel, and um, and and other you know businesses that are supporting Israeli apartheid. Um, and so the State Board of Investment meets quarterly, and so they were scheduled to meet yesterday. And so leading up to that um, on Wednesday, we had a pro. So leading up to that last week on Saturday, we had a, a protest of about a thousand people in front of the governor's mansion. Then on Wednesday, we had a protest of about a hundred people in front of the governor's mansion. Well, 14 people got arrested on his front lawn. Um, for, and what was great about that is that we got a lot of news coverage talking about the role that the State Board of Investment plays in terms of supporting Israeli apartheid and um, this genocidal campaign against the Palestinians. And I don't think that divestment is sexy. I think that it's like sort of abstract for people to understand. And, but I do feel like we've made some real headway in terms of people realizing that like, oh my God, 
Like I'm actually like paying for this. And so I feel like that was, that, that was huge. And then we organized again for people to go and t- give testimony. Um, and I think we had somewhere around 14 ish people who gave testimony to the state board of investment. And again, the number one issue that people are bringing forward in that testimony was we want you to divest from Israel. We want you to not be investing in weapons manufacturers that are actually committing this genocide against the Palestinian people. And so I feel like that has been a really tangible way that we've been able to connect people to like, look, this is this is something that the government's doing. This is a way that we have to sort of break that chain. Another campaign that we did in um, in the anti-war committee was that we worked with several members of our Minneapolis City Council to get Sorry Chicago, the most progressive um, language passed in the entire country. <laughs> Because our ceasefire resolution says an end to USAID Israel, which I think was really helpful because a lot of ceasefire resolutions around the country have said, oh, my God, there's this genocidal war, but haven't sort of drawn the lines of connection of like, yes, and we've actually helped facilitate this. Yes, we've actually paid for this. And our resolution did that. And I feel like that, again, all those battles on the the letters to the editor page, the battles at the city council meeting, the arguments that the city council members had with each other, you know, the protests that we did in front of city council, like all gave us a vehicle by which to really hammer home this idea that we are paying for this. The United States plays a leading role in terms of organizing, and orchestrating this war, which I think people are really horrified by. Like you turn on the news, you look at social media and you're like, oh my God, they're pulling children out of rubble. They're pulling children who look like they've been starved to death out of rubble. Like that's something that's really hard for people to be able to look at. And then to hear that they actually played a role in contributing to that, that makes people feel awful. And so then people are like, why wouldn't you want to divest? Why wouldn't you want to end USA to Israel? And so those have been some of the campaigns we've been doing to really sort of draw people's connection to the fact, not just that this is going on, because, you know, you'd have to be living under a rock to not know that, like, for example, this is going on, but you, but it is hard to sort of have an understanding of the role that we play as Americans, because that is not a role that the U S media plays very often for us. And so that's our job as the movement or as alternative media, like fight back radio to try to sort of push that envelope so that people can and see that there is a relationship between the U.S.'s imperialist agenda for the region and why they're paying for and directing this genocidal campaign against the Palestinians. No, that's good. It's it's, it's impressive too. I mean, I, I I just wanted to note. I was thinking while you were talking about you know because I I remember from decades ago when the the fight against apartheid in South Africa was going on. This was this idea of divestiture was uh, an important tactic uh, in terms of trying to let people know and in a way for people to say, look, I don't want my money to go there. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, it's something. And, and as we talked earlier, you know, imperialism isn't just about a military domination of the world. It's a, it's a military domination to bring wealth to the, those that already have it, I guess, to the 1%. And so it's, it's important to, to, to do things like that. Um, and, you know, I, I, you know, we had this uh, tour uh, a while back where uh uh, Nelson Mandela's uh, uh, grandson, I know, was in, in the Twin Cities, was in Chicago as well. 
Um, I noticed you gave a swipe at my city. Uh, for, hey, you, hey, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of love to go around. You <laughs> the third largest city in America, and so therefore the largest city is passed. Ceasefire. <laughs> doesn't mean that I can't, you know, be excited about our own victories. Yeah, and you should be. Congratulations to to you for having such a solid uh, uh, resolution passed. And so we're we're on the same team. I just uh, that's that's funny. But um, I, I want to talk a little bit because South Africa also uh, brought uh, uh, um, Israel you know, to the uh, International Court of Justice and uh, charged them with genocide. And uh, I wonder, could you talk a little bit about that? And uh, I mean, I, to me, it seemed like that had a huge impact, um, you know, on, on certain sectors anyways. I mean, a lot of people were already seeing what was going on. But, uh, you know, to, to uh, and, and it, I think it further isolates the United States. Uh, Israel, I think, was probably already pretty isolated at that time. Um but it charges them with genocide too, and so you know there's a, a thing of uh, you know uh, in a, in a you know, international legal kind of way. Could you talk about that a little bit? Well, what I thought was interesting is is that so the ICJ stuff was happening around the same time that we were trying to pressure for the ceasefire resolution in Minneapolis, and so the um and they had been arguing about like what type of language to be able to use right in a city council language. You have to use like these like legally binding terms and blah, blah, blah. But what was interesting is because of the efforts of the ICJ, they were able to use things like genocide in the resolution. And I do think it put a real like it gave real legitimacy to the ceasefire battles that people were having at, at city councils across the country. I think it gave people the ability to be like, look, this is not that we're just like sort of like hyping up the vocab here. Like, no, Amnesty International has declared this apartheid. The ICJ has declared this genocide. Like, you know, the being able to sort of give legitimacy to these criticisms that we've been saying for years, but like being able to be like, no, this is not just a matter of opinion. These are facts, right? These are facts. And so I think that that has been really important to be able to sort of like you know, keep this, the momentum of this movement going. I also know so many Palestinians that felt so seen Well, that was happening. Like they were waking up extra early so they could go watch these proceedings online. And they were like, oh my God, people care. You know, and I think that that also put wind in people's sails and sort of gave them more energy to keep fighting, to keep chanting, to keep drumming, to keep protesting. And I think that's really huge and that's really important. Um, but I do think that, um, you know, it's important that there's sort of like a lot of different parts to the fight. You know, like I'm not saying that the ICJ stuff was more important than, for example, the stuff that's in the streets, but I do feel like, um, we can we can really sort of go after you know Israel and the United States on all these different fronts, and that that can have an impact because we're all working together, but sort of using our different skill sets. Yeah, so um, no, that's good. Thank you for that. Um, I want to pivot a little bit here now. Um, I know uh, you you've been a, you're a founding member of the Minnesota Anti War Committee, and you've been doing this a long time. And so I want to take advantage of some of your knowledge on other areas as well. Um, so, but um, could you? T I want to pivot to talk a little bit about the war between uh, Russia and the Ukraine, and uh, you know, again, you know, here the <clears throat> the press and the United States government was, you know, all in uh, for you know support. In fact, you know, arming the the Ukrainians. Uh, uh, I, I assume this would have been a relatively quick war otherwise, um, if they hadn't been so you know heavily armed by uh, 
uh, NATO and especially the United States. Um, so, I mean, could you talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what this war was about and what is it about? I, mean, I shouldn't say was because it continues to go on. And, um, you know, it's uh, because of what's going on in Palestine, it's not quite as much in the headlines as it was. But there's a bill coming up, uh, uh, an aid bill that's going to, uh, you know, that uh, the Democrats and Republicans are, are arguing over to give aid to Ukraine, uh, Israel and to Taiwan. And so could you talk a little bit about the, the battle in Ukraine and how that what, what what's that really about? And uh um, is it, you know, it's been portrayed as, you know, look, Russia invaded the Ukraine, uh, these uh, poor Ukrainian people. Uh, um, and, and, and I know, uh, you know, your committee has taken a, a more nuanced and more complex view of this. And so I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so it's been interesting because we, of course, didn't have nearly these types of numbers for our Ukraine, our, you know, our, you know, Ukraine Russia war protests that we have right now for the Palestine ones. Um, in terms of like addressing this issue of like sort of what is the cause for this, um, we're a part of the Minnesota Peace Action Co- um, Coalition and MPAC. We were doing protests even before, for example, this war officially started over the fact that NATO was doing so many provocative things um, to Russia. And so, I, yes, Russia did invade Ukraine. Um, but also like the United States and NATO have done a lot of things to sort of fan that. And so I think that's, if that's what you mean by the nuanced approach, I think it's important to understand that there is a rivalry going on here between the United States and Russia and the United States. And many people in the United States love to point out the weaknesses of other people's governments and don't like to look in a mirror. And so like right away, there are all these, you know, people who are just like, oh my God, we have to stand with the refugees, you know, oh my God, we have to stand with Ukraine. This is a liberation movement, da, 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 da. And I think it's important to understand that, first of all, there it's not a liberation movement if you want to work hand in glove with the United States. That is not, it's not a liberation movement. Like if you want to be armed by the United States, if you want special forces training from the United States, that does not, that does not make for it a liberation movement. That's, that's like antithetical because what happens is that the United States goes in and decides who your leader gets to be, who, what your strategy is going to be, how many resources they're going to take. And so I think that's important for people to sort of have that mythology debunked. The second thing is, is that I think it's important to sort of look at, well, why is the U.S. involved in this? Like the U.S. doesn't get involved all the time. You know, the U.S. only gets involved if it has to do with resources, as you talked about before, like what's the underlying current for military policy is it always has to be economics. And the U.S. does not like the fact that Russia is threatening it on this sort of like international level. And that's what it's really about is being able to sort of take, you know, is that they don't want Russia to be able to be a a power in Europe. They want to be the only power who's having influence over Europe. So really this is a turf war between these two countries. Um, And then lastly, I think it's important to um, look at the fact, which is that, you know, the amount of money that we've sent Ukraine, like at the same time that that Biden was doing that, he was saying like there wasn't any money for, you know, student debt relief in in this country. Like one of the main slogans we have in the anti-war movement here in Minneapolis is money for human needs, not for war. And the U.S. repeatedly is like, you bet. Let's go fund this war. Let's go kill some people. And then, oh, no. We don't have time to or money to pay for your problems. 
And so, you know, in terms of trying to make connections between like, look, we, you know, this, this war is like directly leading to our own problems in our own country, because that's what we're focused on is killing people in other countries. We had a lot of people who came at us in the anti-war committee who were like, you don't care about Ukraine. You know, you don't care about Ukrainian deaths. And I think it's important to understand that like the United States is using the Ukrainian people as like chess pieces in this war against Russia. Like I, so I think it's important to understand that I am concerned about the amount of Ukrainian people who've died. I'm concerned about the amount of ecological damage that's happened in Ukraine with this war. I'm concerned about whether or not Ukraine will get to make their own decisions for themselves. But I don't think that, for example, um, the U.S. being involved in this conflict is going to make anything better for the Ukrainian people. And I don't think NATO being involved is going to make things better for the Ukrainian people. And if people don't leave, believe me, they could look at Libya and Afghanistan and look at his case studies of what happens when the U.S. and NATO get involved allegedly to improve things, which is that nothing is improved and things are actually quite awful afterwards. And so, um, yeah, I think that that, you know, that conflict, um, you know, we didn't have the same numbers for that, but it's been interesting because I think a lot of people's eyes have really opened in this current period about being like, oh my God, look at how horrible U.S. policy is in Palestine. And I've really tried to get people to look at like, why are these aid packages being linked? Because if it was, if Congress was just asking for aid to to fund the war in Is to fund Israel's war in Palestine, I think they'd get that pass, right? But people are getting war weary. People don't want to pay for this war that's never ending in Ukraine that the U.S. is not winning, and so people are like, let's cut our losses and leave. And so purposely, these aid packages are being joined. And I've had people be like, why are they joining these aid packages? And I'm like, the reason why these aid packages are being joined is because the U.S.'s support of, you know, of, of Ukraine and sort of like NATO's conflict in Ukraine is just like, for example, the U.S. supporting Israel's war in Palestine and that it's promoting the U.S.'s interests in the region. And so there's a reason why these two military aid packages are going up together, which is providing for some interest because there are some interesting contracts contradictions and the ruling class, because there are people who are Democrats and people who are Republicans who are like, I would want to pay for that aid deal, but not that aid deal and vice versa. But they're joining them together because they really need for their agenda for both of them to be passed. And they think that their odds are better if they're joined together. And then, of course, to sweeten the deal even more, what they're doing is they're throwing in, for example, you know, immigrant attacks because the Democrats are worried that they're not going to win the presidential election and they have every reason to stay up at night worrying about that. Um, but the Democrats and Republicans are like, you know, trying to outdo each other for like who can go after immigrants more at the U.S.-Mexico border. They're trying to throw that in to sweeten the deal. And so I think it's important for people to understand that these things are related, not just because they're in the same bill. These things are related because they're all supporting the same agenda. And that's the reason why we as the anti-war movement, I think need to not only campaign against these bills, but to increase people's level of awareness about what are the negatives to the U.S. involvement in Ukraine and what are the negatives about the U.S.'s strategy at the Mexico border and sort of take the momentum that we have with a lot of people who are questioning the U.S.'s support for Israel to sort of increase people's understanding and get them to think more as consistent anti-imperialists as opposed to just have them be like, I'm against this one war here because it makes me sad. Like, I think we have the opportunity to sort of 
broaden people and make people think as 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 broader anti-imperialists. And I think that this bill provides us with some, in, in you know, a unique moment to sort of get people to sort of draw those draw those connections. Yeah. So thank you for that. Um, I, I want to ask you. There's a third piece to the bill, uh, which is uh, uh, aid to Taiwan, and uh, it seems to me uh, that that's you know that's a uh, you know, there, you know, that's the most uh, dangerous one potentially. Um, I, I know uh, back in the, I think 1972, Nixon went to China, and uh, you know, the, the the part of the whole thing was that there was that, that the United States accepted uh, that there was one China and that Taiwan uh, uh, was uh, was part of China, uh, and so uh, the fact that uh, the U.S. has gotten involved in elections in China and uh, there's been a lot of China bashing, uh, you know, this whole discussion about uh, the Uyghurs in uh, north uh, west or yeah, northwest China, um, you know, it's uh, uh, you know the, the you know, back to economics. As far as I see it, it's like uh, you know, the Chinese now have the largest economy in the world. They've passed the United States recently. And um, uh, and so that's a you know a strategic. I think the CIA calls it strategic competitor or something like that. But um, the uh, I mean, but to militarily uh, you know you know try to arm uh, you know the this uh, uh, this you know whatever the the China you know the Taiwan uh, situation and add put money there seems awfully dangerous to me. Could you could you comment on that a little bit too? Because that's part of the same package of different things you were talking about with. Uh, um, you know, aid to uh, uh, the Ukrainian and and uh, and to Israel. Right. So when I looked when I looked up about the bill today, it shows that um, they're asking for one point nine billion that could help open up access to American weapons stockpiles, and in addition to this money for Ukraine and this money for Israel. Um, I feel like one, the U.S. keeps wanting to pivot to Asia in terms of really wanting to threaten China because they're very concerned about how they're losing more and more sort of like of the control of the international economy. What's making it difficult, I think, for the United States, though, is, is that they're not winning anywhere. Like they're not like things aren't going well for them in, in, in any of these conflicts. And particularly, I don't think they had any thought that this conflict with Russia was going to take over two years. And so I do think that they, you know, keep sort of like, you know, if you remember the Obama administration, he kept talking about how he wanted to make this pivot to Asia, this pivot to Asia, you know, but um, China's economy is doing much better than the United States. And the U.S. really wants to sort of get back and focus on that. But, you know, the fact that the U.S. isn't doing well militarily all over the world makes that complicated for them. I, I am concerned about what will happen if Trump is elected um, in terms of in terms of China, like China's um, that Trump's anti-China rhetoric is even more inflamed than Biden's. And um, he definitely, you know, wants to sort of be the tough guy in comparison to in, in comparison to China. And I definitely think he has an interest in accelerating that conflict more than he has an interest in, for example, continuing the conflict in Ukraine. I also am very concerned because every time the U.S. 
you know, sort of increase it, increases its anti-China rhetoric in terms of foreign policy, it leads to a huge spike in terms of hate crimes against all Asian people in the United States. And that's definitely something that we, the anti-war committee, did a lot of work on when Trump was president last time was against his anti-Islamophobic attacks. I mean, he would come to Minneapolis and particularly like rail on the Somali community. We have the largest Somali community in Minneapolis outside of, I think, Mogadishu. And like he would like, you know, make these statements that basically he was accusing everyone who's Somali of being a terrorist. I mean, it was disgusting. It was like open, flagrant racism. And so and, and he talked that way about the Chinese people as well. And he you know just seemed to really sort of fan the hatred of, of religious bigotry. And so I am not, not religious and racist bigotry. And so I am concerned about not only being able to sort of like be encouraging a hot war between, you know, Taiwan and China. I'm also worried about what this means for sort of what what it means for people here at home, as well as for sort of getting the U.S. involved in a in a potential military or economic conflict with China. OK, well, well, well yeah, thank you for that. Um, I, I want to uh, ask you a question that uh, um, I know, uh, you know, uh, we're approaching International Women's Day um, as this is being released. And uh, um, I know you're familiar with that holiday, uh, March 8th, which every year. And uh, it's it's something that's celebrated around the world. And, and really, it's it's, uh, um, you know, it's it's known in the United States kind of spotty, but it's a uh, it's a, a holiday that for, you know, for many decades is known around the world. And I was wondering if you could comment a little bit as we as we approach uh, International Women's Day in terms of uh, the international part of it, you know, how uh, uh, women in, uh, around the world are, you know, fighting for liberation and some of the conflicts you mentioned, but others, if you w- wish to talk about that as well. But what International Women's Day means to you? Well, this year in Minneapolis, um, we're going to have a International Women's Day March for um, women in Palestine. Um, and I'm really excited about it because I think it gives us an opportunity to really push back on some of the rhetoric that Israel uses and sometimes the U.S. uses where like women's rights are used to justify imperialism. You know, like the, um, you know, the, the United States doesn't care about rape if, for example, it happens to women who are serving in the armed forces, but they do care about rape if it allegedly happens somewhere else and it's done by the people that they, for example, want it to be done by. And so like rape was used as like an excuse for supporting Israel and its attacks on Palestine. I'm really excited about a lot of the Palestinian women that I work with really want to use International Women's Day as a way to respond to these allegations that like that um, of, of rape that have been issued against Palestinians, but also really want to talk about how rape has historically been used to be able to attack um, women who are organizers as well as women who are freedom fighters in Palestine. And so I think that that's going to be important. To me, Women's Rights Day, um, International Women's Day is a lot like, for example, Human Rights Day or International Human Rights Day in December, which is that the U.S. really likes to weaponize this language of human rights for their own purposes without actually doing anything that improves human rights. Um, And so if we look at, for example, what's going on in Palestine right now, disproportionately, the people who are being killed 
are women and children. If you look at some of, oh my God, the horrible stories of like women who've been pregnant, who've been giving birth, women who've been burying their own children. I mean, there's some really gut-wrenching stories of what have happened to women in this conflict that I think that we have the opportunity to use International Women's Day to really highlight and to be like, you you know, to be able to sort of like use this lens of like gen- gender equity and, and the liberation of women to be like, this isn't liberation, right? Like bombing a civilian population, starving a civilian population, bombing refugees as they're fleeing in the area which you tell them they're supposed to flee to. This is not, you know, the liberation of women, you know? And so I, I feel like we have that as an opportunity to really sort of respond to this pro-war or sort of like self-defense you know, rhetoric that the U.S. and Israel use. And so I think that International Women's Day gives us that opportunity. And um, I'm really excited that, um, like, most of the the movement here locally of um, Palestine, uh, the, the leadership of the Palestine, Palestinian community is women that I organize with. And so I'm really excited to get to see what event we're going to be able to pull off together. We're going to do it on the 9th as opposed to on the 8th, so we can do it on Saturday. And we're going to do the march through St. Paul because St. Paul is the city that so far has refused to move forward with the ceasefire resolution. And I believe that we're going to march through the um, president of um, the St. Paul City Council's ward, um, Mitra. We're going to march through President Mitra's ward because she's the reason why we have, even though she's Iranian and Muslim, she has refused to... um, let us advance this ceasefire resolution. And so we want to, and the St. Paul city council is very proud of the fact that they are an all women city council and that they're all in, but yet they haven't done anything to stand with the women of Palestine. And so we want to call out the fact that they like that just like the U S government, they like to use this rhetoric of feminism to sort of justify and pat themselves on the back. But we want to call them out on the fact that like, if you're really so feminist, if you're really such great women leaders, then you would stand with the women of Palestine and you haven't, you haven't done anything for them. And so I do think that we're going to have some, some cool opportunities, um, to really sort of use this holiday and use this event where people look at women as a way to get people to look at women in Palestine and to look at how gender is used sometimes to promote war. Okay. So, and I want to encourage our Fight Back Radio listeners uh, to follow uh, Meredith Sleed here. If, uh, you know, whatever, if you're in the Twin Cities or nearby, March on uh, March 9th for International Women's Day. If you're in Chicago, we're going to do it on March 10th, which is the Sunday. But wherever you are, you know, there's a, you know, look a, Look for, uh, you know, a, a march or a program or something for International Women's Day. Um, this is this comes out of a, you know, a working class movement. Initially, it was uh, um, just to say to uh, the uh, was New York garment worker women uh, who were on strike and fighting for uh, justice back in the early 20th century. Uh, uh, I think it's a little over 100 years ago now. And uh, it, it's something that, you know, it has continued uh, uh, the, the socialist uh uh, leader uh, Clara Zetkin uh, introduced it into a, a resolution uh, uh, in Europe and, and became a, a, a international uh, event. And so I think this is, uh, you know, if there, if you can't find anything going on, hold a program, uh, at, at, you know, at your church or at your house or whatever. Do something for International Women's Day and uphold the role of uh, women who are uh, critical to the liberation of all people. So there, there's my commercial uh, for International Women's Day. Um, unfortunately, 
we're running out of time here, Meredith, and uh, this is it's went quick. I enjoy speaking to you and, and hearing your wisdom. Uh, uh, you know, full disclosure to our listeners, I've known Meredith for quite a while. Um, but uh, uh, as we wind down, is there anything else that we haven't covered here that you would like to add or anything uh, that you want to say to our Five Pack Radio listeners? Um, so the Anti-War Committee on Social Media, if you wanted to follow us, is Anti-War MN. That's on TikTok. That's on Instagram, Facebook, tw- Twitter. And so if you um, if you wanted to hear more about the protests that we're organizing on March 9th, you could go there. Or, for example, if you just wanted to be able to follow us in general because you think our work is cool, you could go ahead and follow us there. Um, I do really want to encourage your listeners to um, come protest at the DNC in Chicago in August. The Democratic National Convention? Yeah. Okay, good. And the Republican National Convention in Milwaukee, because I think that um, both of these choices are horrible. And I think that regardless of who's elected, I think that our work here is definitely not done. And I really believe that the real change comes in this country from the streets and from protests. And I think that politicians only give us what we make them. And so we definitely need to use these two stages as an opportunity to be able to project a better future and what we what we demand and what we want, because I don't think that what we're going to be offered at either of these two conventions is going to be particularly uplifting. So I think it's going to be important for us to sort of create our own vision for the future. And so I think that um, I'm planning on going to both. I live in the in the Midwest, so it'll be really easy for me to be able to get to both. And I hope that people who are your 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 devoted listeners will also come because I do think that it will be an, an, an opportunity for us, particularly in a way that the ballot box will never give us or definitely is not giving us this year, an opportunity to say with um, a much louder voice what we want instead. Right. Thank you for that. And uh, our listeners, devoted or not, uh, I hope we'll see you in Milwaukee at the Republican National Convention and in Chicago. Chicago at the Democratic National Convention. Uh, they both promise to be exciting and good protests, and 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 we and we must. This is a, you know, potentially is a, you know, we have to stand up, otherwise we'll never win. We'll never get anything. Uh, if you're not going forward, you're going backward. So let's go forward. <laughs> so thank you, Meredith, for being our guest on Fight Back Radio. Uh, this has been a, a joy to talk to you. Well, I really enjoyed it, and hello to all of your listeners. Okay, so that was uh, Meredith Abbey, and uh, you know, as I told you, you know, it's uh, she she knows her stuff, and uh, uh, thank you, Meredith, for being our guest on on Fight Back Radio, our, our International Women's Day guest, uh, especially. And uh, you know, I just want to repeat, people should go to uh, International Women's Day event. Uh, um, they're in your area, and, you know, check it out. You can check out uh, the Freedom Road Socialist Organization. Put possibly they. In your area, they will have a, an International Women's Day event, I'm certain. And uh, these are it's important, as I said, that we uphold the women in our movement and uh, and tell them uh, uh, you know the importance of what they've done. Or, or pick up a book, you know, uh, about some uh, woman activist over the years. Uh, these are all valuable things, and we need to preserve you know our history and preserve this struggle. Uh, Meredith encouraged you to to go to the Democratic uh, National Convention here in Chicago and protest uh, uh, Joe Biden's uh, war moves uh, 
and uh, also the Republican National Convention in Milwaukee. We encourage you to go to both of those things, um, and we'll be continuing to do that right up until the time of those nominations. Uh, so we hope people can do that. Um, but uh, uh, before I leave, I want to, as always, uh, give uh, props to uh, the, the best production team ever, uh, Dodd McColgan, uh, Natalie Pranis, uh, Vince Olson, and Shane Tremley. And I'm Richard Berg for the entire Fight Back Radio team, saying until next time, all power to the people. And we're out. Okay. Excellent. It's okay? Yeah, sure was. Sure Wife was says it's good. okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I'm going to upload this stuff.